Hi, I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today is going to be a little different from my straight up interviews. As I mentioned in last week's promo, I found some audio of an interview I did with Anthony Bourdain seven years ago. And after asking people on my social media accounts whether or not they wanted to hear it, the answer was yes. So I'm going to play it. The best way to start this is by sharing my own story. And then we're going to listen to the audio. And I'm going to be joined by my dad, Sergio Zeman, to discuss the audio, what Bourdain meant to us and what he meant to the world at large, at least from our perspective. Even though I was just a reporter at Some Atlanta Alt Weekly, Bourdain treated me like I was any other reporter and had so much respect. I only had eight minutes to do the interview, which is why the questions are in such rapid fire sequence. But it was probably the greatest interview of my life because Bourdain was the reason that I even entered the culinary world in a professional capacity. After I read Kitchen Confidential, which came out in 2000, that book just kind of stuck with me. And in 2001, I moved to San Francisco. This was in the summer, right before 9-11. And I plunged headfirst into everything culinary. The tech bubble had just burst, but the culinary world was really exploding at the time. San Francisco was also growing and changing. The Ferry Building Marketplace, if you've ever been there, was really one of the first culinary food halls. And I lived right near there. So my obsession was full blown. I was working in public relations at Old Navy during the time. And I got a job doing public relations for Apple. And something told me, don't do it. Go. To culinary school. So I left corporate America after having studied at Emory and ended up in the culinary world. And it was all because of Bourdain. I had not heard his voice. And if you are a Bourdain lover, I mean, part of his appeal is that gravelly low voice. I hadn't heard it since he passed away because honestly, it hurt too much to hear his voice. And I thought I would be binging his episodes, but I haven't been able to watch a single episode. So finding this audio was also the first time I heard his voice, and it just made me incredibly emotional. Thank you for so much for your time, first of all. I know that you're uh, about to get on the radio, so I'll keep it short. I just wanted to you know, ask you a few questions um, about your tour and just in yep. general. Well, first off, I'm a big fan. Um, my father's a super fan. Um, and he has followed you all over the world. <laughs> so he is very excited that I'm getting to talk to you. And so are our readers. I, uh, we did a giveaway on our website um, asking people where they would take you to eat if, uh, if they had the opportunity so they could win some free tickets. And um, it, like, blew up our website. So we've got to to choose a winner this weekend. My editor told me to ask you, but I'm sure you have more things to do than coming through 130 comments. But um, I just wanted to know, based on this tour, I mean, what can people expect on this versus the last time you were here in Atlanta? Um, It'll probably be filthier and (laughs) less family-friendly. I can promise that. Um, Is there a question that you hate being asked? 
Um, not really. I mean, I'm glad that anyone, you know, cares enough about me to ask me any question. I mean, having spent much of my life as an anonymous uh, chef and line cook, I'm grateful that anyone pays any attention at all uh, or asks any questions. But, I mean, I could probably live a long life without ever being asked, you know, what's the most disgusting thing you ever ate. Um, and, you know, uh, but I'll be asked again. So, you know, I don't mind. Well, what did you eat for breakfast this morning? Uh, I just had coffee and, uh, you know, one of those uh, horrible little health bars. I don't really what? eat breakfast. I'm a, I'm a coffee, <laughs> cup of coffee in the morning guy. And uh, what scares you aside from people like Donald Trump running for office? Um, clowns, uh, mimes, and nurses' shoes scare me. <laughs> um, was there a time you were particularly burnt out, and how did you get out of it? Um, I've been burnt out at various points, I guess, cooking. Um, I was burned out. Like uh, Doing the layover was a really tough experience for me. I mean, I'd done 16 episodes of No Reservations in a year, and then I went out and shot 10 episodes of, uh, of uh, the layover pretty much back-to-back in the space of a month. And that was really, really, really tough on me and not an experience I care to repeat. People loved that show, but it was an absolute misery to make for me. And how is, how is Parts Unknown different? Is it less intense for you? Uh, I'm having a lot more fun. I'm a lot freer to tell the stories I want to tell uh, any way I want to tell them. Um, I'm a lot freer to, to, you know, tell, widen the focus or narrow the focus, uh, you know, the sort of filmmaking and editing and, and the creative choices that we're able to make. Uh, we have a lot of latitude. We can go anywhere we want in the world. Uh, you know, with the support of CNN, we're, we're, we're free to go really difficult places that are tough to get into, like Libya and Congo and Iran. Um, so, I'm, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm having a lot of fun uh, and a lot more freedom and uh, working for, frankly, smarter people. So it, it makes me very happy. I'm, I'm, you know, they've been very, very, very good to me at CNN. I mean, everything they ever said they do for me from day one, they have done. And uh, they've been really loyal and really supportive. And it's been a happy, it's, it's a very happy relationship for, for all of us, I hope. And since you work with CNN, I have to imagine you come to Atlanta quite a bit. What do you think of Atlanta no, as a food town? I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, CNN has headquarters in New York as well. Uh, so, uh, no, I, I don't come to New Atlanta for business. Uh, but I do love Atlanta. I love the uh, it, as a food town. Um, it's a place I've done a lot of uh, book tours and some speaking gigs. And uh, one episode of The Layover, actually probably my, the happiest episode I've ever done. I mean, it was really a high watermark of my career, bringing Alton Brown to the Claremont Lounge. It's uh I'd like that on my headstone. It's perhaps my finest accomplishment. Is there anything in the world that stokes you with a childlike curiosity? Um, many, 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 many things. Yes, uh, everything, everything Japanese. You know, much, much of the East uh, is fascinating to me still and continues to be. Uh, you know, I'm a history buff. Yeah, there are many, you know, I'm constantly intrigued by things. You know, I like reading. Um, I'm, I'm passionate about film. And, uh, you know, and I'm, uh, I, I, it's a childlike uh, fascination with, uh, you know, watching my daughter grow up. Yeah, that was my next question. Has becoming a dad changed you in any way or yeah, changed you know, your the, career the, path? 
the, the cliche that everyone says, you know, when you become a, a parent is that it changes everything. Of course, they're absolutely right. Everything changes. And, you know, I am no longer the star of my own film. I mean, that ended the second I watched her born. You know, there's someone more important than me now. Uh, it's not about me. This movie's not about me anymore. It's all about her. And uh, there's never any question in my mind about that. So, yeah, I think about... Uh, these things and my responsibilities to at least try to live long enough for her to reach the eye rolling stage uh, <laughs> before I check out, um, you know, so I'm not putting my head up over the, over a foxhole just to, you know, to look cool. Um, you know, uh, there are probably some really stupid things I've done in the past that I wouldn't do again. Um you know, I'm not smoking. Uh, I don't have any illusions of uh, ever being cool, uh, you know, uh, or ever being cool again. You know, I just, uh, I know, I very much know who I am. I'm a dad, and my responsibility, uh, my first and most important responsibility is to be a good dad and uh, a good, and as close to a good person as I can be. And the sort of person that my daughter will hopefully not be embarrassed uh to know, you know, when she's, uh, when she's older and, and, you know, her friends are teasing her in school. Is there anything at all going on in American food right now that's getting you really excited? Um, I think there's a real realignment, like we're redefining what American food is. I mean, American food now uh, is, you know, uh, made by uh, Korean, Korean, young Korean guys who grew up in, uh, in a Mexican neighborhood. It's uh, Koreans who grew up in the American South or in Kansas City. It's uh, more than ever, it, it's American food has always been food made by whoever happens to be living in America. But that is becoming a very interesting, there's a very, uh, a particularly interesting bunch of people who are really redefining what American food is. And a lot of them happen to be uh, Asian American. And final question, do you believe in the afterlife? Uh, I do not. I believe that after we die, we are diet for worms, and that is all. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know you have to hop off and do a radio spot. Um, looking forward to your show. Okay, thanks so much. Good talk All right, to you. thanks. Have a nice weekend. All right, you too. Bye-bye. So, Dad, you just listened to the audio. What are your takeaways? It was funny because, uh, you know, I haven't heard it in such a long time, and he passed a few years already, you know, even though he continues to be pretty much alive in all of our minds for a variety of reasons. But he was both humble and uh, challenging. And he always had this unexpected twist to him. You ask him, you know, how, you know, how is this time going to be different? And he says, it's going to be filthier, you know, which is kind of so out there, you know, so bourdain. And then, you know, kind of the things that he said he's afraid of, you kind of go and listen to that stuff and it makes you think, right? I mean, you can actually extrapolate into a hundred things, you know, why those three things are symbolic of things that, that every normal person will be afraid of. And then I think lastly, um, the, the fact that he was constantly looking for kind of the next thing, right? I mean, he was kind of, you know, when I, you remember, I, I run all my life, I'm a marathoner. And uh, we always used to, used to say there's no finish line, which we always say, okay, you just finished the marathon. You didn't finish, it's just the beginning of the next one, right? And I think he was always somebody who picked up that, you know, Nike line, there's no finish line. That's what kind of, you listen to that thing and you see the humbleness of the guy and at the same time, the bigness of the guy.
And it's strangely enough, it's exactly, we didn't even plan this. It's exactly three years to the day that he passed away. Wow. Yeah, today. And I was reading, GQ did an article in 2018 called The Last Curious Man, where they talked to people who actually know him. So like Repair, Blued, all these guys that were friends with him. And one of the things someone had answered was that people all over the world go, why am I so affected by this? I didn't even know the guy. And one of his friends said, yes, you did. You shared a thousand meals with him. Why, why do you think he was such a cultural touchstone for so many, not in just domestically, but also globally? You know, he was unexpected. You know, he, he was always, you know, kind of, he was like Christopher Columbus, right? I mean, he was always kind of going out there, discovering things that we didn't even know existed. And it wasn't about going and, and eating, you know, stupid things like Zimmern does, right? I mean, it wasn't about going and, or, or going and, you know, even I like, you know, the exploration that Fieri does of going and discovering, you know, little holes in the walls. But, you know, with him, it was more about finding the touch points of a place or of a culture or of a history. You know, he says he was a history buff. But in a very, very broad sense of the word, right? I mean, he wanted to know the connections. And I think that if you go back and you look at, you know, as you know, I've been to 123 countries in the world because of my work in the past. But I think that, you know, you go to a place and you kind of make the list of the sites that you're going to see, right? And kind of in the old days, you figure out the museums and the archaeological ruins. I remember when I took you guys, the first time I took you to Egypt, right? I mean, we're kind of staying there in Giza, you know, to look at the pyramids. And it was that, right? But at the same time, I always going to go and try to figure out some kind of a pita place somewhere, which I thought was another cultural aspect of a town. And I think he was that way, okay? He found touch points with cultures and places and locations that were not only driven by food, but it was food and the behavior that was attached to food. I mean, first, I mean, we discussed this before that he started as a food tourist, but became an eventual anthropologist, which is a word you really love to use to describe him. Why do you think he why do you call him an anthropologist rather than like a food personality or a, you know, like he's very different than others out there. So why anthropologist? Well, you know, look, you go back, I mean, we can go back to a thousand scenes with Bourdain, right? In which you laugh or you're about to cry and all that. But I remember that one in Vietnam that coincidentally he ran into Obama, right? And, you know, he kind of got Obama to come in and sit in this dinky cafe uh, and, you know, and they drink and they drunk beer, right? And he was kind of explaining to him not so much about what, the food was, but he was exploring behaviors of people at, at a very, very basic level. You know, I come from, you know, uh, we're Jewish and, you know, and in my family, always it was the thing that said, well, you know, every holiday is accompanied by a huge feast, right? And uh, like this, this uh, Argentinian comic says, you know, anytime anybody tries to kill the Jews, then they come up with a holiday and they do a dinner, right? But also in Mexico, anytime there was a, every event is accompanied by food that you kind of say, you know, why is it that, you know, that you have a quinceañera and the ritual is to go kill a pig and make a big meal out of a pig, right? And, and, and was that get-togetherness uh, 
that he explored at the same time that he explored the loneliness of a lot of people. And then he explored the, you remember when we went to that uh, place in Hong Kong with the two wrestlers, you know? Oh my God, the bodybuilder noodle the bodybuilders. I mean, followed there were these him too. Yeah. weird guys, right? Mm -hmm. And then we're sitting outside waiting for a table and you have all the- I got those chewy the crabs, noodles and the beef. The, and and the went, crabs yeah. crawling in the street. And uh, I mean, he was, he always showed us an aspect that, that, was, that was kind of interesting to have, right? And it was not about the food. It really was, okay? But it, was about, it, it was about the food and the place where the food was and the people that made the food and the people that ate the food. So it was this agglomeration of things that kind of grew into a, into a whole that made things just incredibly interesting and always waiting. Look, the day, we, the day we found out he died, we were waiting for the next chapter of Bourdain, right? It was, it was kind of, we had finished look, you know, watching the previous Sunday or whatever it was, and we we're looking forward to the next Sunday. Yeah. And the next chapter was his death, right? And you mentioned repair re before, and, you know, we've met him. And, you know, Eric is a very quiet and, very, very reserved kind of guy. He's the antithesis of Bourdain. But I think maybe that's why they were such good friends, right? Because he could actually poke fun at him and repair will make fun of, of Bourdain. And they had this incredible relationship. So he was, he was an anthropologist. He, he, was, he was looking and exploring, you know, kind of the hidden behaviors of humanity. Well, I mean, for me, I think, and for Jesse, who's my sister for listeners, he reminded me a lot of you, you know, I mean, you're older than Bourdain and to us. Barely. <laughs> <laughs> so when we were growing up, you were like kind of the original explorer for us, though, um, as a family. And you really showed us the world and it was always through food. So to me, you felt very much like Bourdain as a child. You know, I would have thought you knew everything. But even Bourdain to you stoked this childlike wonder. What was it that made his exploration and discovery so appealing to you and different than your own? Well, look, I don't compare myself to Bourdain in any way, shape or form, except for the love of discovery, right? I mean, which is the thing that he, I mean, that probably was one of his greatest qualities, you know? I mean, I kind of, every day you wake up and if you want to stay fresh and young, you find something new every day. You know, whether it's an extra mile on a run or a new dessert or a new place in the middle of nowhere that is making good food or bad food or whatever. You know, I believe that when you travel around the world, kind of there is a pre-established number of things that you're supposed to see, right? I mean, you go to the museum, I mean, if you're in Paris, you go to the Louvre and you go to, the, to Notre Dame and you go to the thing and you go to a cafe and you pretend that you know what you're doing <laughs> and you eat, a, you know, a sandwich and, uh, you know, you buy the, I mean, the proverbial bottle of wine with a piece of brie and you go sit on the grass and blah, blah, blah. And because you're trying to kind of do things that basically say that you visited the place, right? For me, it was always beyond that, right? It was kind of, what do the local people do, okay? What, what are the things that the local people do? And that would, that would augment greatly, you know, kind of my, my understanding of 
of a place. Yeah, you know, your mom will drag me to the main museum. You know, you and your mom, you know, kind of like that and know a lot about that. And but I you would like, take us to the grocery stores. Why? Correct. And because I believe that when you walked into the place and you say, you know, is a, and I know for a lot of people, this might seem mundane, but is the tomato sauce different in, in you know, in Italy than it is in France? And, I think it's fascinating. Maybe and, I'm just a nerd. And I, you know, I used to fly food from all over the world and still travel, you know, where I don't, you know, I like a good piece of bread and I, that I bring my bread from New York when I'm there. And I, but it was always kind of finding that store at the corner, you know, or, or that, that food that somebody will make in a market, you know, that will be, uh, it, it could have been the same thing, right? But it was never the same thing, right? If you went to Oaxaca, you know, and you went to the public market and you ended up, you know, buying a, a taco or something like that. And then, you know, you think that you know everything, you know, until you discover the new thing that you find that you don't know it. And then you keep on looking. Look, I've been to Paris. I mean, I'm uh, probably 80 times in my lifetime. You know, and I lived there for a while and I still go. And before I go, I do research and I find out what is the new place. And it's not about the, the greatest chef that ch just came about. It's about the bar, the wine bar, okay, that now is serving some, you know, some natural wines that some up and coming you know, Vigneron, you know, is, is putting in and, and it's about somebody telling you that they just opened up a place that serves, you know, cassoulet the way it was being done in the past. And you go try, by the way, not always is good. Okay. And people keep on opening things. You know, I'm Mexican. I was born in Mexico and I love Mexican food, as you know, and I'm always looking for that new thing. Right. And last time we were in Mexico, pre-pandemic, tamales in the corner. Now they do have tamale sandwiches, you know, which is kind of crazy, right? I mean, they have a bolillo and they put a tamale inside. And then we went to Querétaro and one day in the market, I was just kind of walking around and they were doing chicharrón uh, tortas with pico de gallo. And it was like, are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> um, and they were called guacamayas, you know, which is like, uh, you know, one of those parakeet, big birds. And, and every single one of those things kind of adds to what it is. I'm, I've been to, I don't know how many five-star restaurants, and that doesn't interest me anymore, right? I, I, well, it hasn't interested me for 20 years. But I mean, I, I want to go to a French place in Paris that has a wine list that the mm -hmm. guy is going to come in and is going to show me one. I remember we used to go to Taiwan, you know, and my, not only was the service in Paris incredible and the food incredible, but I always look forward to Jean-Claude Dinat, the owner, you know, who passed away coming in with that bottle of wine that I never heard of, right? And we'll drink it at dinner, and the next morning I'll drive by the store, and I'll buy a case and schlep it on the plane, bring it back. And that was always kind of my, my discovery. You know, you go back and you look at some of the gr great Bourdain moments, right, where he would actually go, and he'll be shocked when somebody will give him something, right? And like that and, liquor with the snake, remember? <laughs> he was yeah. like, oh, I, was I don't like, know if I'm going to do it. You know? So he uh, was really the curator for the curious traveler in a way. But also you got to travel, I think, even if you couldn't, because I mean, traveling is expensive, you know, but he he did so much for so many people. It's just really interesting to see how even three years later, 
people are just all very emotionally affected by him on a personal level. When he passed away, like what was because like, I mean, you're not like a super like, let's talk about our feelings kind of person. But like for us, like it was like a point of contact for us and like for Jesse, my sister as well. I mean, we were all like affected. I haven't even watched his show since then. Have you? Yeah, I do. Because I mean, I miss him. And I, and I like to watch his shows and I like to actually see the crazy, stupid things that he says and does, right? But I mean, my, my first reaction when I found out he had died was I was incredible, okay? Because I never thought that, that Bourdain would kill himself. I mean, it was like, first of all, I, I don't understand the whole concept, you know, of taking your own life, right? And I, and I, I don't think I, I ever will, right? I mean, I, but Bourdain, it was kind of, are you kidding me? You know, why would he do it? What was affecting him? And he had changed a lot in the previous couple of years, you know? He went from, you know, he became a lot more weird, okay, if you wish. And uh, he went very heavy into thoughts and, you know, he started doing more and more. And then he had that Italian, you know, girlfriend that was kind of, you know, and then he divorced his wife and, and, you know, but he was doing things to himself that were kind of weird, you know, like that martial arts that he was doing and all that. And I think from then on, he was trying to figure out why, right? I mean, what motivated him? And we, we all had so many theories, okay, about why, right? And, you know, my, my overarching theory was that he ended up being so responsible to so many people and he just wanted out, okay? He just wanted, but he couldn't get out. Okay, he figured that he was going to disappoint a lot of people. Suddenly he, he announced that he was no longer going to be, you know, traveling around the world. I think that that would have been very disappointing to all of us. And he would, it would have been a major letdown to a lot of us. But I think it would have been a major letdown to him, right? You know, then, then you kind of, you saw a lot of people that came out of nowhere to talk about Bourdain. And the ones that really touched me were not the guys that I didn't believe or I didn't feel were honest, like the other food guys, right? You know, like Zimmer and those guys, you know, I just didn't believe him. But, but it was the anchors on CNN, right? That would come out and tell the stories about Tony going into the studio and screaming at the top of his lungs and interrupting whatever they were doing <laughs> and being a friend. Or that thing with Harrison, with, uh, with Cooper, right? Where he actually was teaching Cooper how to eat you know, anything beyond McDonald's, you know, which reminded me of when you were young and that's the only thing you would eat. Yep. Right? Well, I read now. also that, that Bourdain was not even interested in food and cooking as a child. So it also makes me feel really good. But the thing, another thing from that article, GQ, Helen Rosner, who's one of my favorite food writers uh, for the New Yorker, she said that he was the center of so many ecosystems and that so many people were relying on that show and she didn't say this part, but someone else had said that so many people were relying on the show and him at the center. I mean, it had to be immense pressure, but I mean, we can all speculate what happened. We'll never know. I don't even know if it's appropriate at this point to do so, but today it's very interesting because now all of the tributes are starting to come out. We saw that book with his longtime assistant, which is actually a beautiful book that just like a, compilation of all of his spots that he loves all over the world. And now we have the trailer that just dropped that I sent you that's coming out about his life, which was, it got me very emotional. I wonder what do we do with his legacy now? 
because it seems like so many people are still grasping to touch his memory, um, even three years later. Well, I think that it's interesting to look at the evolution of his presence on TV, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. he went from from No Reservations, which was kind of a wacky little thing, right? Cook's Tour first, and then No Reservations. Exactly, yeah. Cook's Tour, mm-hmm. then No Reservation, and then he went from there to, uh, what was it, the one that, over, what was it called? The one that he just traveled overnight or 24 hours. Oh, gosh, yeah, I can't even remember what that I was I can't called. remember. And then the last one, right, which was Parts Unknown, right, mm-hmm. in which he actually was taking us to places that, that otherwise we would not go. And he was evolving as well. But I mean, you look, look, if the you layover, back, it was the layover, the layover. OK, uh, that was a lot of fun. But as he said in that interview that you did with him, it was killing him. Right. It was a lot of work and it wasn't fun. And yeah, it was interesting. OK, but it didn't have the breadth of what he was. He didn't have the he, he was interesting in film. He was interesting in discovering new things. And yeah, food was kind of interesting. As a, but food was a little bit of a, of a connection to things, you know, more than the predominant thing in there, right? It wasn't like a lot of the other shows. And now you look at, at some other shows that are there that are kind of trying to discover. And, you know, there was a, a like recent... Stanley Tucci show? Ugh, yeah. I mean, look, I, was about, about, I was about to say about that. I mean, you know, and, I mean, kind of it was interesting. Wrong cast, okay? Wrong show. And the stuff that he went to look at, I mean, well, you know, I'm going to show you what my mother did and all. It was boring. Now, you know, you have other people coming into the thing. I think Bourdain, people are going to try to come up and copy the kind of things that he did, but I don't think anybody will. But I don't know where he was the one that initiated the whole thing. But remember, you know, Americans and Europeans, Japanese and Chinese, right, don't know how to travel. Okay, so you go and you look at international travel and you go back and you look at the Europeans, right? And what was kind of the the fulcrum of discovery for the European? It was Club Med, right? Because Club Med said, I'm going to take you to Morocco. I'm going to take you to a far-fetched place. And by the way, I'm going to tell you how to be a tourist. I'm going to tell you how to go on vacation. So I'm going to make it easy for you, right? I'm going to have buffets so you can you don't have to choose so if you don't know anything you can just point and eat right a little bit of a steve jobs point and click right and i have a bunch of activities for you to have fun and then that was stolen by the cruise lines right when you get on a cruise line and you don't know how to go to the caribbean and the night before the cruise director tells you how you know which hat to buy right and where to do calypso and those were kind of, I remember the big tours with the Japanese or even today with the Chinese or the little flags, whatever they are, right? Where you go in and you, I mean, you have all these people who actually are kind of the guiding lights, right? The divining rods that go in and discover these things. And Bourdain did it in a way that I don't think that Bourdain, Jenny, appeals to everybody in the world. Okay. Oh, no, uh-uh. but, a lot think- of, but he appeals to a lot of different types of people. Yes, but, 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 but there is, I think that he appealed, okay, past tense, to the ones that were looking for, for that edge in the place, right? It, it wasn't about the chef or stuff like that, but it was, about, it, it was about the persona that actually was doing the thing, back to those wrestlers, you know, in Hong Kong, right? Or, but not or, everyone could actually execute what they learned from him. So I sure. do believe there was a bit of escapism or virtual escapism 
through his shows for a lot for another whole segment of the audience that couldn't afford to travel to Hong Kong and go eat those noodles. Um, so I do think that he, you know, it's like he went discovering and we got to tag along. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm speaking with my dad, Sergio Zeman, about our mutual love for Anthony Bourdain. I agree. Uh, I think that's a very well, a very good way of putting it. I mean, uh, he, he is a guy that was actually trying to fill his cup, right, with all these things, you know, throughout his life. And, you know, like Clubas tried to do. By the way, we, we, we start with an empty cup, okay, or an empty vessel. And as we travel, you know, as I've, I've told you many times, you know, wealth is what you know, okay? It's not what you have, right? And, and if you know, if you speak more than one language and if, you, if you've been to more than one place and if you've eaten more than one food, then you start getting wealthy. And I think that Bourdain was a very, very rich person. He was a very wealthy person because of what he knew, because of what he discovered. And, and the thing about it is that every one of these things that he discovered was the beginning of another discovery. It was kind of a challenge to say, oh, wow, that was great. Is there something else that I can kind of apply what that person was doing and go do it again? I also think that's a huge part of what he did, aside from the, the, the discovery. It was the respect and the insight. And I think he really personalized a lot of these places and people for Americans that would otherwise, you know, uh, uh, going shopping in a market in Thailand, that's all boats, like gross, like what's that? But then you sit there and you, he tells, he introduces you to the vendor and the story behind their product. And it's like, it's real. Well, you know, yesterday... I knew we were going to do this today. And yesterday I was kind of flipping through the TV and suddenly I saw a Zimmer thing, uh, Zimmer destinations or something like that. And, you know, I, I've always been, I believe that great cooks cook with their mouths, right? With their taste buds, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, if you, if you can taste what you're going to cook, right, then, you know, it doesn't end up being the same. And I always say that when you go to Mexico, for instance, and you see a Mexican standing in a taco shop and eating a taco, you, he eats with gusto, right? Sabroso, right? He kind of is enjoying it. And I was looking at Zimmer yesterday, trying something, eating something. And he, did, he was fake. He wasn't really even enjoying the thing, right? He go, ooh, this is great. But they never did that, okay? I mean, when he ate the thing, you could tell he was actually tasting it and enjoying it for hating it. It didn't make any <laughs> difference, okay? Uh, but I mean, he was, he was, he was true, okay? He was but always uh, respectful, always, always a gentleman, always, always, always a always. gentleman. Look, when he did the interview with you, he was incredibly gracious, right? And also he paid attention to your questions. He didn't try to kind of put you down. He didn't try to do any of that stuff. You know, he was fun, right? And he, he was kind of a, I don't think there's anybody else like him. And I don't think there will be ever a, anybody that will come out because in order to be what he was, you need to be the way he was. And you need to have the, the appeal and the approach that he had, you know? And I just, I just don't think there's anybody out there that, that actually can jump into his shoes, you know? Uh, and, you know, and God knows I watch a lot of TV shows and a lot of travel shows. It's, it's just not there, you know? I mean, everybody tries to come up with something. I, I looked at that. I wanted to make, you know, a, you know pork, uh, you know, milanesas in a pasilla sociale. So I went on, I Googled a recipe and there's this woman, this Mexican woman that cusses. 
at the top of her lungs. Uh, she's about 35, and she calls the food the F thing and the F thing and all that stuff. And you go, they're trying to kind of get themselves kind of a thing, and they come across as schlucks, you know, all of them. And I think, like you say, I mean, Bourdain was always class. I mean, that if he had a middle name, he was class. So, like, here's just a question as we, like, you know, near the end of the interview. I mean, given what's happened in the past year and with COVID, now that we're all kind of starting to open back up and get vaccinated, travel is a possibility again. And um, I wonder for you, for me, it was always, again, that sense of discovery. And I mean, that's why I went a backpacked around China by myself for two months after college, like a crazy person, even though you guys told me I was crazy, you know, because I love that discovery. But now I feel like everything that I do has so much mental math attached. And I don't know, will I ever be able to go to one of those places in Hong Kong like we did with it for the noodle soup or the under the bridge crab spot? You know, do you think that that is that that is a possibility when you and I talk about going for a daddy daughter trip to Tokyo or Singapore, is it going to be different for you? Of course it is. But look, I mean, I think that you bring up a fascinating point. So do you go once to a place and that's it? You're going to check it out or do you go back over and over again and you go over and over again. And I mean, let's just stick with Paris or let's go to Tokyo. Okay. Okay. And the very first time I took you guys to Tokyo, you know, you wanted to go shopping in Shibuya because you heard about it. And I kept on telling you it was a dump, right? Uh, you know, and then we went to, uh, you know, I wanted to take you to a place and you guys didn't want to go to the Tonkatsu. So the we train station. At the train station, okay, which is the best place in the world to eat. Is which Tokyo I did not Tokyo. know because I didn't live in Tokyo like you and mom. So. Correct. But now, now you come back and you say, I want to go back to Tokyo again. So you kind of sit around and you say, okay. Do we go to uh, visit the Imperial Palace? No. And you go, I don't think so. I think we've done that. Okay. We've looked at all the big fish, you know, in there in the canal. And we look at all the Japanese running up and down. So how do you go to the next membrane of discovery? And it's a restaurant. It's the food. Okay. It is the, it is the, the people, right? I mean, I go to Paris and I, and I get in, I have five sites that I discover, you know, where are the up and coming uh, stop movie or TV people are going to eat, right? And I go check them out, right? To see what they're doing. And I don't go to what is the latest chef, right? Because I know what's going to happen. If I go to the, to Madame, to the, uh, uh, to Madame Pic, which is the, you know, the daughter of, uh, of the guy from Pic, or if I go to, some of the fancy restaurants. I find the little place like a Verbolet. No, oh, you right? love like Severo. Like when you found the Severo, Severo you were like, okay. oh, Severo. I mean, this is a guy, okay? He was a butcher. He decided to do steaks for eight people at night, right? They were, I mean, it was in the middle of nowhere. Would I go back to that place the next time I go? No. I'm going to find another one, okay? Like that. And that is what's going to make it fun. You know, as you know, we had, tickets to the French Open for years, right? And your mom is a big tennis player and big fan of it, but she don't want to go to Roland Garros anymore, right? So when we go to Paris, yeah, she'll go to the museum to see what the latest exhibition is and all that stuff. But how do you make up the rest of the stuff, right? I mean, what do you do? Do you find that little cafe that serves the Polan, Polanais, you know, sandwich, you know, with a glass of mm. brouillie? 
uh, in the middle of nowhere, right? Or you go find the angry, uh, uh, you know, owner that is married to an Argentinian chef, you know, at Le Bagatan, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or you go find, I mean, those are the great things. When we go to Japan, what we're going to do is we're going to go find kind of who is the late, the last time I was there, I didn't go to the five top sushi places. I went to a place where a guy had decided, young guy, spoke English, and he wanted to give you, you know, hamachi from six different places in Japan. That was unbelievable, right? You know, we went to the fish market so many times. I mean, you guys you were eating that, that, that roasted uni you remember the that? Yeah. with the chopsticks at like seven in the morning after seven, we got off the plane. It wasn't seven in the morning, it was six in the morning. Oh, the yeah, only reason I would early. go back to the fish is because I'd be jet lagged. But I really don't have any interest in going and looking at the, at the thing. But if you tell me that somebody's cutting fish somewhere else and has, and I'm not, you know, that is what is going to continue to make it interesting. You know, I mean, if I tell you that let's go to Argentina, to Buenos Aires, what are we going to do? I mean, remember when we were Italian? Well, exactly. <laughs> so much the vegas, uh, cafe culture. I mean, I mean that, but potato that's it, right? sandwich, French fry sandwich with steak, you know? So, so that is yeah. what we're going to do. And it's not that we're piglets, but it is that is the additional thing, in addition to the museum, in addition to the to the cultural thing, in addition to the big castle that was built by someone or the cathedral and all that, there is that one place in Milan that serves the best pizza in the world. Right? And that's Paper what Bourdain Moore. would find. And Bourdain exactly. would find that last place. So without Bourdain, how do you find it? You just do. I mean, you get on and you ask questions. And look, remember one time I went to Paris and we ended up, I had read about this restaurant and they only sat eight people in the restaurant. There was a, a guy, I can't remember the name of it now. So mom and I went, right, to this restaurant, and we get there, we get out of the taxi. This is pre-Uber, and we're not, I mean, it's closed. And I said, oh, you got to be kidding me, it's closed. So I knock on the door, and a guy unlocks the door and opens it, and indeed, in the, inside, there are only eight places. And I said, there's nobody else in the restaurant, or maybe 12 places. And he says in French, he says, well, you know, I had a reservation for a group of eight that they canceled at the last minute. And I went, oh, great. I said, but, but I'll cook. I said, but no, but, but it's okay. He cooked, he served, and he cleaned. There was nobody else in there. And the very first thing he did is he gave us all the pâtés that he had been doing for a while, right? Just put them on the table, help yourself, and then cook for us. And then come, came and sat down with us to talk to us about what he had cooked and what he had found in the market that day. And I did one of those things that it just occurred to me at the moment, right? And I said to him, by the way, best frog legs in Paris. The guy says, oh, and gives me this bar. And I said, wow, I never heard of it. He says, I'll call the chef. So he calls his chef, okay? And off we go the next night to eat frog legs. And then we get there and the guy greets us, the chef. And we sit in this table, Jenny, we couldn't put the bottle of water and the bottle of wine on the table, it was so small, okay? Unbelievable. So then I said to the guy, to the chef, I said, by the way, where is the best shoulder of lamb? And the guy said, so we did eight days when we kept on asking chef, the chef that we went to eat where we should go eat next. <laughs> and it was unbelievable. So how do you do it? You get creative. You find out things like that. You read about the guy that just went and, you know, and ate a thing in some place. 
but you don't go to El Bulli and stuff like that. And I love Rezepi at MoMA, but done that, went to Mexico, chased them like you did. I think that the guy is brilliant, but I want, I want the local guy. I, I, I want the guy that just decided to do a brand new pretzel in Munich, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, that's the thing that would be fun, right? So you uh, still can do it. And, and, and I mean, if anything to honor boarding, you can continue to do it, but just to, you know, end the episode, is there anything else that you want to say about boarding that comes up for you that I didn't ask? Well, no, I mean, I don't think there's anything you can do about him. I think that he was maybe a confirmation of something that I always did. You know, I mean, when I was a, when I started work at Procter and Gamble and we used to go store checking, you know, because you were supposed to, and it was a way for the company to trick you into going to the market and see how the product was being displayed and all that. We always went there and we went with this very limited stipe uh, amount of money you know we had to stay in dinky hotels and basically we had to go in store to store and check what height that your brand and i always wanted to go figure out whatever i was you know what were people eating you know and i think maybe that's why bourdain was kind of a maybe he was just a reflection of a lot of what i liked okay i mean I, i think that he was a guy that his view of life was about discovery it was about about continuing to enrich your life with knowledge and and uh, both visually and physically and all that stuff. He had a personality, but and, and the chutzpah because of where he came. He did a lot of things that were not kind of kosher, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, he'll get drunk, you know, and he'll suddenly keep on drinking beer and drinking sake or moonshine, Korea, moonshine <laughs> and stuff like that, right? Yeah, and then he was showing the show the next morning with a horrific hangover. Right, it was fun to watch. It was a, a, a basically a prism into into the world uh, that you know he gave us, and it was a guy that kind of gave us uh, a list of things to probably aspire to do, uh, a list of places that we aspire to go to, even if we never went. Okay, we could actually virtually go to that place that we would never you can fantasize. Go. You could dream about going right. there. Now we yeah. went. Okay. Because I mean, we basically said, I mean, well, that's would, what we spend our money on. We're experiences over things. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's like, I mean, you would call me up and say, let's go. Right? Like, you know, who would take a trip to go eat oysters in Normandy? Right. And you know, I mean, who would, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't think of going to the ABBA, you know, a truffle festival. We did. Uh, and I think that he had a big influence in doing that. Would I have done it without him? Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think that was part of my DNA about travel and discovering. And I wanted, I had a list of, everybody talks about bucket lists, right? I had a bucket list of places I wanted to show you and Jesse, you know, around the world. And I did, you know, Taj Mahal. I and, mean, that's the best education you ever gave us yeah, was travel. Yeah. Um, Traveling still around. So, and, so you, do you still, speaking of travel, do you still have the same love for it even after the past year of weirdness? Yeah, I do. But you know, interesting, Jenny, not a lot of people want to go with me, you know, <laughs> I do. Uh, I know you do, but your mom doesn't want to go to all the places that I want to go to, you know, but yeah. So I keep on kind of getting people that want to go, I mean, that want to go with me to that place that says that crazy Korean beef, right? Uh, in Korea or how are you not tired of it yet though? How are you not tired of traveling and discovering? Because like you said, like you guys have, 
you guys have done everything and you guys have climbed Everest. You've been evacuated in the middle of a tsunami from the Maldives. You know, I mean, you've done everything. How do you still have the same hunger? It's fun. I mean, it's like, I mean, for me, I mean, going to a restaurant in Miami is boring. Okay. You know what people, I mean, people basically. You mean you don't want to get into Carbone? It's the hottest table in Miami, dad. I've been there three times already. And it is a fun place, by the way, but I got to tell you, yeah, I mean, the I mean, food was not great. And, you know, but, but I mean, you go, you go, I, that's, I mean, look, I like to have, I like to go to places where the experience is what drives the experience, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't need to go with six people to a dinner where everybody wants to eat out of the same plate because, you know, I'm a, I'm a germaphobe oh, and I won't do COVID it. COVID gives you a reason not to Even more, that. right? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but even before. So, you know, it's like when we go to Japan, where are we going to go? We're going to ask someone which subway station has the best ramen. And it's probably going to be two guys, you know, that have that you have to buy your ticket outside and pay and then the go. The best eat. ramen I've ever had was a Michelin star ramen in a subway station where I waited for two hours. Correct. Just to take it was the best chicken python ramen I've ever had. And and by the way, same here. And mm -hmm. you know, what is the best sushi? And I mean, as you know, I go to New York a lot and we have a place in New York, and I look for the ramen and I look for the for the, uh, you know, that new band me, right? From a guy that is going to come up with it. Or you go to the Bronx for birria. I mean, what were you guys doing? <laughs> I mean, you're like on some said, birria mission. Somebody said there was a guy that had great birria tacos out of a truck in the middle of the Bronx. You're such a Mexicano. You will travel for tacos anywhere. Oh, anywhere, anywhere. I mean, well, Dad, that's what they call me, Mr. Taco, you know? You are, and you are the the most interesting man in the world to us. But um, yeah. I really appreciate your time. This seems like a proper way to honor Bourdain's memory um, by talking to you, because I mean, if there's anyone that stoked my intense curiosity for food, it was you. You asked me, do you watch his shows? I do. I still go back and I look at some of the shows and I watch them and I, I always end up with the 45 minutes with a big smile in my face. So how was it hearing his voice just now talking to me? <laughs> Like just, it was just so, he was so respectful, right? I mean, look, when you were asking him, he's, he talks to a, a thousand people asked to come in. I don't know what you, uh, what you were doing at the time. I think you were, pub, you were critiquing for the journal, creative right? Loafing. No, for creative, creative loafing. It was creative mm -hmm. loafing. It was right? all it was, weekly in Atlanta. It was, it, it was a, it was a, in the scheme of things, it was a small thing, right? It was creative loafing in, in Atlanta. And he has this, you know, writer reporter that wants to interview him. And the guy treated you like he treated Obama, right? He gave you the time. He listened to your questions. He gave you thoughtful answers. That was class. That was a lot of class. And he had a lot of class. He did. Well, thank you, Dad. Thank you, Jenny. That's this week's episode. Thank you for listening and thanks to my dad for joining me. If you want to keep up with me on social media, you can find me at Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds on Instagram and Twitter. Next week, I'm joined by Vaughn Diaz. Born in Puerto Rico and raised in Atlanta, Vaughn explores food, culture, and identity as a writer, documentary producer, and author. She has contributed recipes and essays to a number of cookbooks and her work has been featured all over the place like New York Times, The Washington Post, NPR, Bon Appetit, Food & Wine Magazine, and more. 
She's also been a reporter for NPR, StoryCorps, and The Splendid Table, just to name a few. She wrote her culinary memoir, Coconuts and Collards, Recipes and Stories from Puerto Rico to the Deep South, and she is currently working on her second book. Again, I'm Jennifer Zeman, and we're back on Wednesday. You've been listening to The Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Thank you.